is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. week's Thinking God podcast. I talked to Susan Isaacs, star of Stage and Screen, as I mentioned last week. Uh, excited to have Susan. One thing I'm going to do this week I never have done before, um, Susan wanted to make it really clear that uh, when she was talking about several issues here that are very complicated and um, you know can create problems that people don't understand, um, that she was talking, uh, when she was talking about particularly the LGBTQ issues, um, that what she was talking about was it has to do with religious liberty and her fear that religious liberty is being undermined, socially persecuted. And she also um, didn't mention a lot of things. Her short answer, she said, would be that she supports the civil rights of the LGBTQ people, but also supports the rights of the people who disagree with them. And that makes for some uncomfortable public living. But it's what America was founded on, freedom. Um, I agree with Susan that this has turned in almost a zero-sum game. Most vocal proponents from each side want full submission to their opponents, and that's what Susan was saying, and that that gets scary. But she didn't get to say that in the podcast because we got to rambling on. I tend to get people rambling, and I tend to ramble with them. So I wanted to make that clear up front as we get into this conversation with the wonderful Susan Isaacs. Susan Isaacs is an actress, author, and I believe the only non-animated member of the Western branch of American Reform Presbyterianism. That's the Simpsons <laughs> religion. And she also has a cold. She has appeared on Parks and Recreation, Seinfeld, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Mom, My Name is Earl, and dozens of other television uh, shows and movies, including Scrooge. And she also has a very nicely framed picture of herself in the hands of John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Let me ask her about that. <laughs> she is also a writer and author of Angry Conversations with God, a snarky but authentic spiritual memoir. And if you had not read her book, start wait, stop waiting for it to go on sale on Kindle and go ahead and buy it. I'll just go ahead and throw that in there for you. Uh, well, first of all, let's tell, tell people how hard it is to write a book. Everybody says you're going to write a book. Tell people how hard it is to write a book, Susan. Oh, it's excruciating. It's it's so hard. I, I I think the whole thing about writer's block, I mean, there's been plenty of statements. I think it was was D.H. Lawrence or um, one of the other authors from that era said to his editor, where were you when the page was blank? And the whole thing of writing is easy. Just sit down and open a vein. Anything worth doing is difficult, Um, but it is very hard. I think sometimes you have moments where you just sit down and a story comes out. For me, it's usually when it's something that I don't have to do um, or I've got a deadline on something else or there's something else I have to do. If I just sit down and write, um, it comes out of me. But it, it is very difficult. Uh, but, but that's one of the things that I feel like God reminds me of, like, it's not cause you're terrible. It's just, it's hard. You know, when I feel like I haven't gotten done with this, blah, blah, blah. God's like, well, that's cause it's hard. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for everybody. Uh, but it's also worth doing. Uh, it wasn't until I, I sold my first book on a book proposal. Um, and then I had to write it and I feel like God tricked me like, no, you got the money. So now you have to sit there. I felt like God was like like I was in a, a boxer, in a boxing ring, and I kept wanting to, like, give up the fight. And he's like, nope, nope, go back in. I'm keeping you in, you know, keeping you on, on the boards. So are you working it is on, hard. Are you, are you working on another book now or something? It yes. sounds like you still read uh, I am. Um, I actually had tried to get this uh, book sold about 
uh, two or three years ago, but um, we didn't get a really good offer, and publishing was in a different place. Christian publishing, especially, they were. It, the book is about um, the very end of singleness and the beginning of marriage. Um, it's um, the working title is "Beautiful and Terrible Things Will Happen." based on the Frederick Buechner quote. Um, And it's about the good and bad advice that I got from the church and the world about being single, singleness and marriage and intimacy and all those sorts of things. But um, it's the lie. I go through the the end of being married, end of being single, the beginning of being married and reflect back on all the crappy and glorious things that I, that I experienced and, and learned. Yeah, that's uh, particularly the Christian. I noticed in recent months, uh, who what? I don't remember the guy's name who wrote all the books on courtship. He's like, now what was I thinking? That was oh, just, Josh Harris. That was just stupid. You know, he's, he's completely yeah. renounced the whole. You know, yeah, courtship. Well, like, remember he wrote that when he was like eighteen. I know. He's like, what does the kid know? I mean, what am I? Saying? You're reading, reading, believing what I've got to say. <laughs> well, every pop star is a eighteen year old kid telling the rest of the culture what we're supposed to believe. So. You know, he wasn't that much different. Well, it's that great shift when, you know, in the 50s, they decided, you know, if they could sell products to young people, they would be loyal to the brand their whole life. But instead, the entire ship of the culture turned around. It was yep. a slow turn, but now the whole culture is about, you know, youth and teenagers. And well, you're teaching a bunch of, a bunch of those right now, mm-hmm. right? Aren't you teaching I a bunch of young people? And- For the last seven years, I've taught uh, screenwriting and sketch comedy at uh, Azusa Pacific University. Uh, uh, Christian University here in uh, Southern California, and uh, it might be a little bit different being in the microcosm of a Christian university, but uh, it's it's. I actually I have to say it's very invigorating and um, exciting um, to awaken an interest or a, uh, a talent um, with a student. And doing the sketch comedy class was probably the most fun I've had in my life. Um, it's just wonderful and so exciting to sort of be like a midwife to these kids coming up with this original fun material. It's so fun. Sort of like we, you know, we basically build a SNL type of show every semester. It's super fun. Um, I'm, I, the bureaucracy of a university is not fun, but I, and it would be the same anywhere else. It's, it's, it's. The kind of thing where you're like, why do I do this? Oh, right, because of the kids. Yeah, it's they're super, super fun. I've worked for a couple of universities, yeah, and we all used to joke about is the, the big difference between that and the corporate world is the heads are a little pointier and the hats don't fit as well. You know, <laughs> and the pay is crap. Yeah. That's, speaking of pay, and uh, <laughs> you're blogging quite a bit, which I know is just such a huge revenue source for Oh, yeah. And, in fact, um, I got some emails saying uh, I've never had this. Somebody wanted to partner, you know, with me in terms of advertising, and it was a co- clothing that sold modest clothing. <laughs> so it was probably like Amish and um, Muslim gear. Wow. Wow. So, And I thought, well, it's revenue. I don't know how many people want to buy uh, a neoprene bloomer bathing suit, but – who knows? What's that radical faction of the Amish that actually has electricity and can log on and read your blog? I'm guessing Is there that. such a thing? Are they like guerrilla Amish? Yeah, I think so. Like the, they talk about the you know the the reason there were so few Amish drive-bys. It takes a long time to, to sidle up alongside with your horse and shoot and run. Um, <laughs> but 
you're, but you are blogging a lot lately about the recent unpleasantness in America. Um, yeah. And it seems that the election and the aftermath have left you sick for like a couple of weeks now. You've been. <laughs> yeah, I've had a cold. I think it's a grief cold uh, that stuck with me. I'm, in fact, now you probably couldn't tell whether maybe I was um, a woman or a man in drag. But uh, that's, yeah. I uh, I'm very troubled about where this country is going and you know to be fair i understand why people voted for trump and i um i think that either was either candidate was going to send us down a dark path and frank the amount of acrimony and and bullying and all and all this sort of stuff i think trump just gave people permission to show their worst selves and I don't, I don't think we had a great choice in the matter. I think there were going to be a lot of terrible things that would happen if uh, Clinton had won. But the thing that is most disturbing to me is the level of acrimony and hateful speech and actions that have been unleashed. Uh, frankly, I, I think God is telling us, well, don't blame the candidate. Blame yourselves. This is who you are now. This is who all of you are now. And um, I'm very, very, um, I'm very, very disturbed and sad about what our country has turned into. I think it started, uh, I don't know, I think respect for the office has been lost over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Richard Nixon didn't help. Bill Clinton's private life didn't help. But I remember the day. It was during Obama's State of the Union address when some Yahoo got up and shouted, you lie. I thought respect for this office is gone. And uh, the guy the just got reelected based on him doing that as well, by the way, just so you'll know. Well, I'm glad, but the respect for the office. That's what I'm saying. Though. I'm just saying that tells you where we are, though. That won him yeah. reelection in his kind of congressional district. Um, oh, the, oh, that man who said that. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, it just makes me so, so sad. Um, it's it's very very it's very very disturbing and saddening for me. Um, I've even thought, where could I emigrate to? China? <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, the church is is the church there is very alive. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> um, Take enough no, Americans I'm, over there, though. We'll slow them down. <laughs> right. Although maybe the ones who've left are the ones who are like, I don't, you know, I'd rather be here than there. So maybe it's kind of the 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 faithful remnant i don't know mm. i don't know so i'm i'm very very sad and uh, i have to say i i belong to the pessimist party uh our slogan is everyone poops i i i saw i saw difficulty in in making either choice to be honest but i do think it's a wake up call i think uh if we're heading towards some kind of refining and suffering and violence i think you know we really have to pay attention to what is god telling us about ourselves well i thought you were very gracious in in your blogs i mean it, it seems that uh the the only book that uh the evangelicals wanted to reference was parts of leviticus and the king james only version of that and I mean, Christians have always been weird, but not this weird. I mean, it seems like we're drifted a little further away from the idea that, uh, you know, the fruit of the spirit is not mm -hmm. is listed in the New Testament, but it's a laundry list of evangelical do's and don'ts, and you know what we think. And you know, in my part of the country, they're they're the ugly thing. Um, uh, I've got a brother who's uh, works for the 
school, he's a school superintendent over in Georgia. And he said the first thing he's noticed already is Confederate flags flying in everywhere. In a place where, you know, 98% of the people are involved in church. Um, but you did yeah. mention, and I think you're you're part of the undercurrent that I'm picking up on from a lot of places that that are disappointed with this president-elect, but are kind of pushing ahead with the idea that we should move our attention away from Washington and more toward just doing the next best thing that we've got right in front of us. Mm-hmm. I kind of picked that up in a couple of your blogs. Well, uh, you know, I, I think there are some things that Trump has promised that will certainly um, – make the uh the church be encouraged i think one of the big issues with this was the supreme court um i i'm pro-life but i recognize that some people you know it's really hard to put yourself in the position of a girl in trouble um you know sometimes that decision is made and it's a really awful and terrible one um and i i'd like i'd rather come down on the side of of grace for those women who do that uh, i think when we also call ourselves pro-life we have to say well then are we for guns and war uh because if you're really pro-life then you really need to be pro-life all the way down the board i think we we constantly find ourselves in issues of of being um compromised or we find that the, that there are flaws in our reasoning and again i i just have to side with uh I, if I'm not the person in that position, I have a really difficult time judging that. But I, I am, uh, I am pro-life. Um, I'd like to make abortion safe, legal, and very, very rare. Uh, but I do, uh, you know, if they do turn overturn Roe v. Wade and send it back to the states, it might at least uh, put women in a position to rethink that choice. Uh, but also I think the issue of religious freedom ha- has very much been under attack. Uh, there was a SB 1146 here in California that was basically um, aimed at the um, LGBTQ rights, but the aftermath, the effect that it had on any school that held to a traditional view of marriage could have uh, state funding removed and things like um, uh, um, government grants for, for students would be removed. So you wouldn't, you know, you would really cut down the population of your, of your, um, of your student population. You know, people couldn't go there because they couldn't get a grant uh, to pay for or loans, loans or grants, things like that, that I think, are kind of a left, you know, the progressive left, uh, you know, regressive left uh, kind of thing. So so there's problems on both sides. Um, And I don't know if this really fits in with your podcast. So I understand why people voted for Trump. I don't know if he's going to deliver half of what he says. I think that's when the – we're not going to get jobs back, the jobs that are automated. So there's a lot of things that he's promised that he made blanket statements that sounded really good. But I don't think he'll anyone would be able to deliver those things. So we're going to have a lot of dis, um, disillusionment and and more violence. Um, but I think for the the Christian community that voted for him, I think my my question is, who have you aligned yourself with? Because you have these people with Confederate flags and bullying and all, all these hate crimes, and I think. If you're aligning yourself with groups like white supremacists or very an angry mob, then 
how Christian is that? And yet I also recognize if people people voted for Hillary, there's plenty of stuff on that side that that um, you'd find yourself in a pickle. So I really, I kind of felt like we had a Hobson's choice. But I'd rather err on the side of, you know, the fruits of the spirit or love, you know, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all, all these things against which there is no law. Um, and I do think you have to go down to, you can't expect the government to save you, Um the, the church has flourished uh, a great deal in persecution. Uh, so I don't know if that's what we're, we're basically going to get hauled away to Babylon. I don't really know what's going to happen. Um, but I, you know, you can't trust in princes, as the, as the scriptures say. I, I understand why people voted on either side. I, I, I understand that. I think the problem is is that we've unleashed a monster in terms of the general population. And that's what is very, very disturbing to me. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a couple things in that. One, you're right. There there has been a polarization on the extreme edges of the Mm -hmm. right and the left. And it's like, I have to be 100% right. That means you're 100% wrong. So we can't tolerate each other at all. But anybody who tries to come in between kind of gets trampled. And the, the people who are forgotten in this are more than just uh, are not really the people even who were strong supporters of Hillary Clinton. It's the, the poor and the elderly. And you're talking about pro-life mm-hmm. and anti-abortion. I've noticed a trend among uh, a number of Christian groups in probably the last decade that have eschewed sort of the idea of anti-abortion and really embraced pro-life, which means, you know, pro-health care, pro-child mm-hmm. care, pro-taking care mm-hmm. of, you know, moms who can't care, pro, pro the children's life, their whole life, rather than just, we want to get them, you know, delivered at the, in the, uh, delivery room and produce life there, but it's pro-life that reaches beyond that. It really is a pro-life stance and not just an anti-abortion stance. And that's what's hurt the anti-abortion movement. I can remember uh, in 77, they had a chance to outlaw partial birth abortions, but it was swinging for the fences. No, we want it all outlawed or nothing. We're not going to take any compromise legislation. It has to be everything. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we're left in a place where, but you know, you you talked about then as as people of faith, um, it wasn't exactly a really good uh, political system when Jesus was coming along. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't have a lot of friends in politics. But it does seem yeah. like people have co-opted themselves. I think it's as much for wealth and power as it is, which is another age-old thing, as it is for uh, politics. It just there's the, the people that I have run into, and I'm in the heart of that uh, Trump country down in the Deep South, um, that uh, it was more about money. It was about my taxes, not taxing my business, right. not taxing. And most of the people I'm talking about were, are people who have more than one home and, you know, <laughs> wow, well to yeah. do, very well to do. I mean, and, those are the and what's the Christian mandate there? You know, um, get more money. I think Jesus had a parable about that, about the house on the sand. Yeah, I mean... You mentioned uh, the the shift in the um, pro life movement. I think Sister Joan Chittister said it best that we we need to be pro life, not just pro birth, uh, but taking care of the child all the way through. And I would also add, uh, why if we're really pro life, why can't we be open to some kind of gun reform to get rid of uh, these uh, automatic weapons that own that were made for military use to kill as many people as possible. That's what they're for. And if you're really pro-life, then then you should not be for those kind of guns. 
to add safeguards and background checks and close loopholes and to get and to take the most murderous weapons off the market. I think we tend to go to catastrophization. You know, like if we do that, then they're just going to take all our guns away. Um, well, no. I mean, that kind of catastrophization is is been used to kill any good idea. Uh, so, I, I think we have to recognize. Uh, you know, the beginning of wisdom is recognize. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but also recognize uh, all the nuances and um, very difficult choices that have to be made. And you can't just be blanket anything. I'd love to see partial birth abortion completely outlawed. Um, But to take care of the whole child and also recognize that in the same sense that in acts of war and things like that, that innocents get killed, that um, you also have to stand alongside the life of of the person in trouble, uh, the woman in trouble. And be willing to walk with her. Uh, and if that choice is made to have an abortion, I mean, that's it's very grievesome to me. But, um, but have compassion for that person, too. It's very difficult uh, for us to – it's easy to have uh, ideal ideals and principles. But when it rubber meets the road, there's actually the person right next door to you. Um, how, do you how do you love them, you know? And some of our, you know, it's all back to defining faith. I mean, some of it reminds me that that um, seems like one time before I was looking at some of your clips and one of your uh, mockumentaries you did on change your life. That sort of fake. Oh, right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of how people are redefining their own faith, even if they call it biblical faith, to fit what they want it to fit. And I know, we, look, we all do that to some degree. There's oh, no, God, there's, yeah. you know, we, everybody takes it and twists it around. But during during this meltdown, I've noticed that um, it's a little wonder that a lot of the people who are already doubters are just seeing Christians as more toxic than ever. Oh, yeah. And I know you run oh, into yeah. that a lot out there. You must run into a lot of folks out there that are just kind of like, really? You know, this is kind of what we figure. Oh, yeah. Hollywood has already been a little bit suspicious of, of faith, particularly of the Christian faith. But this has just put the nail in the coffin. You know, if we, you know, because the evangelical vote, I think it was four out of five uh Christians voted for Trump or evangelical yeah. Yeah, about Christians. About 80% is what they're saying maybe by the yeah. end. Yeah. So, so yep. definitely people in Hollywood are saying, so you guys elected the bully, the guy who called you loser, that the guy who calls people losers and Miss Piggy and, um, you know, is aligned with the alt-right, a.k.a. white supremacy. I think there was just an article in the paper today saying, you know, even the alt-right people make a break and say, yeah, it was white supremacy. Um, that That's who we're aligned with. We're aligned with this big, angry bully who has unleashed, um, you know, given white supremacists a voice and hate crimes are up. And... If I were not a Christian, I would say, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't. What, what, how does any of that reflect the character of Christ? How does any of it look like Christ? And my friend Eric Metaxas, you know, wrote a, a piece in, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, saying yeah. like, why, why that mandate to vote for Trump? And one of the reasoning was because, because we can control him, i.e. in Congress, we can put a lid on him. Um, I don't know. I, th- I definitely can't control his uh, Twitter feed, but 
you can't control the masses of extremists, the rage that is built up in this country. Um, you can't control that. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very disappointed. I mean, and I say all that, um, and there were some policies that Trump has, as a president-elect, um, has done that, that look really good, like the commitment to clean up the swamp and forbid someone who holds public office from working for a lobby group for five years. It's not like he's just some, you know, you know, speaking of snidely whiplash, there are things that he is proposing to do that seem good. Uh, so, I mean, I'm definitely encouraged by that, but I'm very, very troubled uh, by us as a populace. Right. There's two things there. One, the, the swamp, though, unfortunately, is populated by creepy crawlers that are all of his party that are not going to do that. And uh, two, that was the next question I was going to ask you. How is this? I mean, you've been a person of faith for a long time. Uh, your, uh -huh. your, your book sort of traces your spiritual journey. How is this whole, and you even mentioned your friend that is a believer. And when I read that, I'm just like, you know, I really... Honestly, which thought, story was? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I really thought the guy was smarter than that. I mean, I'd read some you know criticisms of his Bonhoeffer book and some other things that said he missed a point on that. But when he came out that, I thought this is just not coming from a place of of a deep understanding that <laughs> expect. How how has this affected your faith? Watching your friends drift over that way that you think like like me, I would think would be smarter than that. And just your own personal. I know. I know your husband has posted a lot online. He's he's not real happy with the whole situation either. My husband is just a big white. Jesus hippie. He's just a big Jesus hippie. Um, God love him. He's great. And a Dodger fan. Can't be, you know. And a, and a Dodger fan. Um, well, to address my Christian friends who voted for them, it's been helpful to have people, smart people who are thoughtful Christians vote for Trump. It's been helpful for me to try to understand because it would be easy for me to just have a knee jerk reaction. But it, uh, um, it's it's disheartening, but if it's had any effect on my faith, it just goes back to my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I would not trust the sweetest frame or government or or any sort of anything like that. Um, I won't wouldn't trust those things. It's 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 made me sad, uh, and yet it's been helpful to hear their points of view, to recognize, because I know them as people and as individuals, and I love them. And for them to vote that way forces me to realize, okay, what, how can I listen and learn from them um, rather than to just dismiss a, an entire populace uh, out of hand? How can I listen and have compassion for them? How it strengthened my faith, it goes back to um, we have no guarantees in life. And the one thing that you hear, oh, you read over and over in is the Bible is that people of God suffered and it was through suffering that people grew up and, and gained wisdom. But I've thought for a while now that I feel a little bit more like Jeremiah sitting on the city wall, watching the whole thing collapse or, you know, what was it like to live in Germany in the thirties? And I'm not, and I don't want to just say that, that you know Trump is Hitler, blah 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 blah. I want to say that we are, you know, wh what if we, the populace, are the people who allow who allow 
something terrible to happen. I feel like this country has been slipping, um, that we have lost our moorings. Um, uh, and that sometimes I feel like I'm sort of the watchman sitting on the wall and I'm trying to chronicle the fall. Um, and I, you know, we may, we may be the people who watch thing. We may be the, be the observers of a huge cataclysm and, uh, it's important to pay attention. But in terms of my faith, it's just, um, it has driven me more towards, um, I know for some people it, it, it drives them towards political action or public action, and maybe I'll get to that place. But I'm kind of just in a place of, of mourning right now. Um, and, and, you know, to be honest, if Hillary had won, I'd probably be in mourning for other things. Um, I don't, I think, um, we have gotten ourselves here. We can't just blame a single person who ran for your office, but we have to look at ourselves and I don't feel a lot of confidence in, um, the government system. And I think maybe God has, you know, passed judgment on us and he would have passed judgment on us regardless of who we voted for. Your, your response, quoting to him there, uh, I had Shane Claiborne on maybe a week before the election. His was pretty much the same, you know, and he's living in urban Philadelphia and community and mm. doing all he can there. And uh, But it was, you know, our, our faith is not on the president. Our faith is on, on something bigger than that and uh, mm -hmm. something that's going to last longer than any of them ever had. That was sort yeah. of Shane's thing. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, what's very important for us is to understand the person who disagrees with you, because that is what is, what we are losing more than anything else is the ability to listen to somebody who disagrees with us. And Facebook does not help. You're not sitting across from a face of an actual human being and, and having to deal with an actual soul. You're dealing with, you know, zeros and ones and, um, you know, the trolls, the troll effect. And it, it's done so much. It's done a lot to connect people, but it's also done a lot to dehumanize us. And we are we are very quickly going to lose the right uh, to disagree. I mean, there is the whole I know that there's a word for it, some sort of a political, uh, you know, the left, the regressive left, the whole thing of you don't get tried. In a, you don't get tried in court. You get tried in a court of public opinion and if you disagree then you're labeled a hate monger when the the ability to disagree respectfully we're losing that and that's very very scary to me it is the civility loss i mean one of my heroes is gk chesterton and his best friend was george mm. bernard shaw which mm. uh, an avowed atheist and they traveled around together and loved each other and debated and went to dinner mm -hmm. and went to the pubs and mm -hmm. there was never any animosity between them at all. And, and people saw that. And that was to me, the kind of shining example of faith. We just don't see much anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Chris Matthews wrote a book about the relationship, um, uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, right. not that far in our, where they were very good friends, um, and, you know, op opposed each other and called each other out, but then they sat down and they got things done. They made compromises. But yes, this is who the church has to be. We have to be the people who uh, not roll over and play dead on whatever issues are important to us, but we have to be the people who love um, love the people who disagree with us, love our enemies. And that doesn't mean rolling over, 
but it also means, you know, just don't call out an entire group of people that you disagree with, whether uh, you're left and you disagree with the people who voted for Trump or you're right and you disagree with, you know, LGBTQ or whatever that is. It's like if go and if how many gay people do you know? Go and bother to make friends with those people. I have way too many gay friends, um, you know, who are, you know, all on the spectrum of being ex-gay, gay, but celibate, in relationships, married. I, I know far too many people and I see a wide spectrum of experiences. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, Pope Francis, I can't I can't sit there and judge that. We've all got crap. Um, I think so many of the issues that we fight over now are so ephemeral. And when we get called um, before the great white throne, the separation of, you know, the sheep and the goats, the, the questions that Jesus said wasn't about what, what, what ideology did you believe? It's like, did you feed the hungry, clothe the naked? Uh, you know, if you didn't do that for the least of these, then you didn't do it to me. I think we get caught up in ideologies in our own head, and it's a really safe place to sort of debate the truth of life in our own head. But the reality of life is very, very dark and murky and complicated, and I I just have to – how can I love the people I disagree with? How can I um, show – be the feet and um, hands of Jesus? Um, and if I'm not doing that, then um, then I just need to step off. In the Matthew 25 passage, you're, you're referencing several people have mentioned that, uh, as we talked about on this podcast, but both groups asked the exact same questions. You know, when did we see mm-hmm. you needy and hungry and in prison mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and sick? And, and, and the answer was one group was just doing it. They weren't looking for religious uh, right. uh, validation. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Matthew. So he also wrote a Kennedy Nixon book, which is very similar. He talked about mm. how close those two guys were. It's a very good book. about. Uh, but I talked, about, I talked to a group of people, and I managed to unite them in disliking me about uh, – <laughs> Uh, the, the election. There, there, there you go, yeah. trying to be a bridge builder and you just end up everyone that hates you. Well, I just, I just reminded people that every, I saw very little coverage of it and I expected to see a little more, um, that historically since, um, FDR, nobody's been able to hold on to four, you know, to four consecutive terms. And it's been rare to hold on to even get that third term. I mean, and you look back over it, it's been, you know, two, two, two terms Republican, two terms Democrat, two terms Republican, two terms Democrat. And it was the, the pendulum was just swinging and nobody really liked that idea at all. And the other question I always ask both sides of that, and I've got friends, like I said, very dear friends and family members, m- mostly friends. Most of my family members are not on the other the far right. But so I asking, what are you doing in your community? I mean, what are you doing to help people? That sort of. I was going to shift gears a little bit here. Since you wrote your book, and like I said, you did chronicle your sort of spiritual journey. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was what? When did that book come out? Five years ago? Uh, uh, 2009. Oh, and then wow. the paperback. I know. that's. Um, I definitely, I'm on the edge of being a one-hit wonder. Um, that's why I have to get this other book out. <laughs> um, the paperback came out in 2011. Okay. Well, what what have you learned uh, in your spiritual journey since you wrote that book? I know that's a lot to, that's a lot of years to just to say I've learned this. But what, what things stand out that you... Wish you had known when you wrote the book. Uh, this too shall pass. I mean, every difficult... I've had a, a couple of other dark night of the soul since then. Um, I'll say a couple things. When I look back on that terrible, dark period of my life, I 
get a little bit nostalgic for it because I, when your life is in, when you're in so much pain, you will drop the things that aren't important. It's like when you're very, very sick, your body just focuses on getting better, not on your quality of life and the fact, oh, I gained weight or I'm bloated or blah, blah. You just are trying to get better. And the same thing when you are so in a spiritual crisis, you all the non-essentials fall away. And the most essential thing is where are you, God? Who are you? Who am I to you? And uh, what is my purpose in here on this planet? Those things become so important. And when, you know, it passed and I learned a lot from it and life got back to being better, not got back to being better, because the point isn't to go back to where you were before. The point is to go forward. But I would sometimes feel nostalgic for it. Like I was so focused on God and God alone um, and my hunger and my longing for God was so acute and you don't really feel that when life's going well. We get, we want to fall back into the comfort zone. So one thing I learned is um, it's a very, very fruitful time. And then, of course, when I hit another dark side out of the soul, I was like, are you kidding me? I wanted this? How could I have been nostalgic for it? This is horrible. <laughs> horrible. Uh, you know, so guess I've had another another dark night of the soul over different issues, but um, it was more sort of like the midlife crisis of like, why am I here? What's important? You know, when you start to hit your midlife and you sort of see the crest of the hill and the car starting to roll downhill and you see like, you know, your future is a long drop off. You're like, why? Um, I have to remember, okay, I remember from the last time that it passed and that I grew from it and that um, there are gifts to get in that and hunker down and focus on the one thing needful. So it helped it. One thing that is a good takeaway and that's for anybody who's going through a dark night of the soul is, you know, if you're falling, there is a bottom and there may be nothing else in the bottom, but God will be there. And you may not see him, feel him, or believe him, but he will be there. And that, uh, as I think I mentioned in the book, that, um, or this may have been something that came in the line of the solo show that, that came out of the book, because there was a little bit of an adaptation, is that God wants to destroy everything about your faith that's based on you and your ability to believe, because you're going to fail you. And that if you're going through a dark night of the soul, you may feel like your faith is gone. But that might be a good thing because if you're relying on your own ability to recognize your own faith, then you're still propelled by your own understanding. And we all have to get to a place where um, we even give up on our own ability to believe because it's not based on our ability to believe. You know, you may say, I don't know where God is. Well, he knows where you are. And we, we may get to a place where, like, I don't know who God is. And we have to be able to say, but God says, well, we know, he knows who we are. And it has to get down to this complete, utter falling. Uh, there's a wonderful book that I've read, um, been reading with my women's small group, and then also uh, on my own. It's Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. Yeah. And he, the central point of the book is that you have to fail. 
it is essential for spiritual growth to reach to hit bottom. Every great big story, whether it's, uh, you know, Odysseus, um, Odysseus failed all the way home. And that is the point of, you know, every hero's journey, every big myth is that the hero goes, sets out on a grand adventure and has to fail in order to learn the lesson. And Richard Rohr even says, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry to tell you, but this is the truth. And that has borne out in my life uh, more often than not, that we all, we have to hit bottom. We have to fail. That's, we have to get to a point where our faith journey is propelled, not by us, but by God alone. And, um, we have to, we have to hit that crisis and we will hit other crises. It's, you know, it's, that's part of the journey. Now, of course, we may be in failures that are of our own making of bad choices, but then if that's the point, that's also the point of surrender and say, okay, God, and I feel like God, whatever our debilitate, whatever our failure or debilitation is, God says, give me what you have and I can work with that. No matter how far down the scale you fall and God says, well, just give me what's in your hand and let me work with what's in your hand. But we do have to give what's in our hand to him. It's uh, um, you mentioned two things there. I want uh, it's so profound because we have so much to learn from the twelve step movement. The idea of life mm-hmm. is unmanageable. Uh, the first step, uh, it, we don't want to get there spiritually. And I, I'm one of these. I was born when Eisenhower was president, so I've been around a long mm-hmm. time. But my friends who have been in faith a long time, their struggles like I don't seem to believe like I, I once did. And I keep explaining, trying to explain that's a good thing. You're growing. It is. You kept saying growth, and I've got a very good friend who's been a pastor for a good while. He said that he. The other Sunday, somebody said, we really liked your sermons better like 10, 10 years ago or something. He's like, really? Thanks a lot. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like, he's growing. He said, if I wasn't growing, he said, one side made me feel good. The other side is like, great. You know, people want to be fed mm-hmm. baby food their entire life. The same brand, the same sweet potato mm-hmm. until they're orange. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, it is, uh, are you involved in church? Uh, if so, oh, why, yes, very much so. Why is that? Why are you still involved in church? I mean, because I can't quit God. Um, but a lot of people don't quit God when they quit church, is that right? I need church. I need – it's the same reason why you go to the gym, if you do go to the gym. Yes, too much. Uh, that, you know, the repetition of, of, you know, you do the reps on a certain machine because you'll have a certain effect. You know, you can say, yeah, well, I can just think about you know, exercise in my own way. But – it is the practice of something that solidifies something. I We returned to a liturgical church. I grew up in a liturgical church. I grew up in the Lutheran church. And I had really gotten fed up with all the hipster, you know, person, cult of the personality where a church's health was based on how cool and and charismatic was the pastor and was the worship really awesome. And both my husband and I got really, really tired of that model. Um and so we, we, we go to an Episcopal church, not because we were drawn to the Episcopalian faith, because Episcopalian faith can be, you know, you can find churches that are, they're just Unitarian Universalists. But I remembered the rector when she was a junior rector at another church, and I remember that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She preached Christ, and it was a liturgical church. So we ended up there, and we've been there, um, gosh, I think it's going on eight years now. I wanted to go back to the liturgy because it 
and that that's this is something that I really uh, am a big proponent of taking your children to church and building that in them because children have a childlike faith, their minds, and you can go back to later. Um, if this service was dull or I was really tired of chanting another song, blah, 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 there was something about those practices that uh, harken me back to my childhood and my childhood faith, like just neuro, you know, neuro pathways in the brain. Um, Have y'all found that, a sense of community within the church or is your Very much so. And that's another part of it. It's a little, dinky little church. Um, Preaches, you know, Christ died, Christ, you know, Christ is buried, Christ is, you know, Christ is, what, oh gosh, sorry, I'm, I'm, there's sirens coming. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And it's a small little church, which is a really nice sense of community. And it's also a 100-year-old building, so there's a sense of home in a way that uh, a concrete warehouse can't do for me. Um, there's a great sense of community. In fact, it was really interesting. It was a couple years ago, um, at a Christmas party, uh, that, you know, that w- a, the church was holding, you know, at, at someone's house that my husband got in, into conversation with a man who's been in the choir for 30 years and he doesn't believe in God and doesn't care. And he just goes for the music. And when Larry was like, what? And when he <laughs> related this story to me, I'm like, why does he even go? He's just bringing the mood down for everybody else. I was like, eh, you know, because you can get, um, <laughs> it's got, you know, when you go to an old established church, you get a lot of people who are nominal. They don't know what they believe. And I was like, you're ruining it for everybody else who really does believe. But what was interesting was my husband started a homeless outreach for that um, church that we're starting to work within the community and work with other churches. Like, what are we going to do to take care of the homeless here? And a lot of those people who didn't um, care about dogma showed up to do the work. And as my pastor said, you know what? God has them. Has them. He knows who they are. He's working with them. Don't fret over what someone else's faith looks like. And it made me realize that there's a lot of people who aren't don't really care about orthodoxy, but they do care about orthopraxy. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of people who really don't, Think about, you know, are you believing the right dogma? And, you know, where are you in terms of, you know, what transubstantiation or, you know, uh, Calvin, you know, are you Calvinist or Arminian? They are like, what can I do? And I have to step off and stop judging people. So we have a wonderful sense of community. We have some really, there's a guy who's a retired pastor. He's a, um, like I think a Pentecostal pastor who goes to our early and we have wonderful people there and people of all different shapes and sizes and lifestyles and whatever, but they're there to hear the gospel and they're there to meet with Jesus. And, um, I mean, we're spending Christmas with two other couples from our church. I mean, there it's a sense of great sense of family and it's kind of like, cheers. You want to go where everybody knows your name and you know, that is a place where everybody knows our name, and we feel uh, feel a great sense of Jesus' presence. I love Lent, and especially Holy Week, is a profound, amazing experience in a liturgical church. You know, if you go to a church where you just, you know, you have Palm Fronts on Sunday, and then on on Palm Sunday, and then on Easter, you wake up, and they're like, hey, Jesus is already up. Come on, have a great time. If you have not walked through the passion of Holy Week 
and the ordeal. Uh, one thing I just absolutely love about the liturgical church is you have to go with Jesus on the journey every day. And it is harrowing and profound. And it gave me a new um, appreciation for what Jesus did. Well, you, you, you just brought the, to my next question. I ask everybody on the podcast this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. Well, he's not that blonde, blue-eyed, brown-haired Lutheran Jesus in the Warner Solomon's painting, although his essence is that. Who is Jesus to me? Well, aside from, you know, he is Lord and Savior, he is he's the Lamb who died for the whole sins of the world. He is the uh, wounded healer. Um, he is my confidant. He's the person who, when no matter how far down the scale I've fallen, he's the person who comes and embraces me and says, come on, let's, you know, let's keep going. Good answer. I like that. What's the best piece of advice anybody's given you, Susan? Um, if you're walking through hell, keep walking. And this too shall pass, you know. Uh, you know, midnight comes at 12 a.m., so it's all going to be okay. Um, I love the words of St. Julian of Norwich. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Um, I think it's whether you are um, right-wing or left-wing, whatever your political thing is, um, it's you know, set your sights beyond this little maelstrom and, and look up and see Jesus. Look up and see Jesus. Is there any, can you think of like the worst advice? Anybody give any bad advice that comes to mind when I ask that? Well, it's funny because once I was going through a really <laughs> terrible thing and um, I, the pastor was like, pastor's wife said, like, come and talk to me. Um, I was going through a terrible, terrible crisis. And she just said, you just need to stop that. You just need to stop emoting. Stop it right now. And another person from that church said, Susan, where we're going is Jesus. I'm like, what does that mean? It's funny because that is where we're going. But um, the worst advice anyone gave me was when I was in the midst of some difficult thing, somebody gave me um, a slogan. Don't give anyone a slogan. You know, give them the gift of your silence and your listening. That kind of the other thing I think that comes up a lot too, and, and I ask most of my guests is, "Do you believe in hell?" I uh, yes. Um, I don't know that um, hell looks like what you know. I mean, Jesus spoke of Gehenna. Hell is actually a German word, so it wasn't around when Jesus was talking. Um, but I do believe that hell is. You know, the Bible uses, you know, visual descriptions and to get at the emotion of it. But, yeah, I do believe that there is a hell. Um, I don't I don't know about internal damnation. I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, it's not my business to know. I just know I don't want to be there. I don't want to be separate from God. I think whatever I think C.S. Lewis described it as uh, proximity without intimacy. Um, whatever it is. I mean, we've all kind of been through a 
various tor- psychological torments based on uh, bad choices we've made and circumstances and things like that. But hell may just be that God says, okay, fine, your will be done. And whatever we have insisted on, we will get that. And that will be a terrible, terrible torment. Um, I do believe in heaven and hell, but more in a sense of maybe what like N.T. Wright talks about. Um, you know, he said that uh, what's life after life after life. You know, it's it's we get focused on this cloud thing, but God is has something planned for us in eternity, and it's not just sitting on a cloud. Um, I hope that God would be merciful and um, not give people eternal torment. You know, just kind of end their existence entirely. But I'll leave that up to him. Um, I don't. I, I I do believe that there is an afterlife, um, and I don't know if it's going to look like what people have kind of. It's basically folk, you know, folk art or you know, mm-hmm. or folk religion uh, that has created these um, sort of ideas. But I, people already experience their own torment. Um, today, and if that's true, then I think they're just building their own mansion somewhere else. Right, I, I, I agree with you. I think the older I get, particularly more or less, so many things are above my pay grade. I, I don't get to make yeah. those decisions. Uh, who are some of the other artists or authors that have had a great influence on you, or continue um, to have a great influence on you? Mary Carr um, was beautiful. She, she wrote uh, lit. Cherry, um, The Liars Club. She has a wonderful book called The Art of Memoir, but her book Lit is really wonderful about getting sober and then uh, becoming a, a, a Christian. Wonderful memoirist. I love Mary Carr. Don Miller and Anne Lamott gave me permission to write. I love, love their work. Um, I love um, Over the Rhine, the musical group. They're just so incredible. Um, Scott Cairns, the poet. Um, um, I, I mean, Lord of the Rings, of course, you know, my husband and I watch the director's cut, you know, all three of them, we do, <laughs> do a marathon right. a couple, couple days before New Year's and we invite people over and we just cram in and we watch it. Did that, you get to audition for that? Did you get an, did you get a read for that? Susan? No, no, no. <laughs> Although I was in New York at the time they were casting and I remember the casting booths, you know, a bunch of little chipmunk looking guys going through there. You mentioned um, Anne no, Lamott, I, too. Anne Lamott yeah. um, was uh, in active addiction when I was living out in Marine County. But she, the best advice in one of her books I think that, ever, that she ever gave was that she never went anywhere without a pen and a note card so God wouldn't give somebody else her idea. <laughs> I always like that. I, I, I love her. I love she, just the example of uh, someone on the political left getting caught up by Jesus. I mean, what, what a great God. God is so funny. He's just, I love how he just picks people up and says, you know, just shows an example that you could, because it seemed like people of faith were cornered into a particular political party and she's broken that mold. (laughs) But yeah, Don Miller, Anne Lamott, Mary Carr, um, has been a, and and Richard Rohr have been wonderful encouragers to me in my faith and in my writing. Um, just incredible, wonderful, uh, wonderful people, uh, and wonderful writers. And and um, Mark Hurd, uh, who I'm still pissed at God that he took Mark Hurd when he was only. Yeah. The music of Mark Hurd 
and um, Buddy Miller and um, and Over the Rhine and uh, Steve Taylor's recent albums. Just keep Julie wonderful. Miller in there with Buddy too. So Julie, yeah, yeah, yeah. By Way of Sorrow is one of my favorite songs. Mm-hmm. The, those artists have um, just kept me going. Well, keeping talking about keeping you going, uh, you mentioned you're writing a book. What else is next for you? What are you working on? What what project? Well, I'm working on that book. Um, I have a TV. I finished a TV pilot that um, it's based on two friends of mine. They, they were the inspiration. It's a couple. They're a young Presbyterian couple. They're both pastors at different, wildly different churches. So I wrote a, a TV pilot based on their lives. Um, it's kind of the shenanigans that they've gotten up to being at, you know, he's the senior pastor of a broken down church where in a community of, you know, plagued by gangs and hipsters. And she's uh, a pastor for the 1% in a really shishi area of town. So they're, they're hilarious. Their lives are hilarious. Um, Title that for people to watch for? Well, it's for, for listening producers are looking for properties to buy. Um, It's, it's, I don't want to give it away. Okay. So, right. <laughs> um, and and the book, I'm also collaborating with uh, a filmmaker working on a um, a TV pilot idea um, out of Nashville. So I'm working on those, and um, I'm hoping to get um, beautiful and terrible things will happen sold to a publisher soon. And you're still doing your show of some, right? Yeah, it, it, it's evolved a lot since you saw it um, in North Carolina. Gosh, that was quite a number of years ago. Um, I just did a run in Canada. Um, I was there for a week. I did uh, a week of shows in Canada. So I've thought about uh, getting it, remounting it in L.A., maybe like a once-a-month show that just is ongoing. Um, but it's just a matter of raising the capital for that. What All is, comes down to money. And absolutely, I've had a I've had a, a cash register sound effect. I would use it right now. Maybe yep. we'll drop it in later. Um, drop it in later. What's the most fun you've ever had in the business? Well, improvising with John Candy when we were shooting planes, shoots and automobiles was an absolute blast. We did scenes. The scenes got cut, and they're in a vault. They may have been melted already, but. Thanksgiving, um, improvising Thanksgiving dinner with. Um, um, John Candy was um, just unreal, absolutely unreal. Um, working on Parks and Rec was an absolute blast. To, I mean, you get one in the can, and then you also just do what they call a fun run. So you just improvise the scene, and it was hilarious. The very last one's episode, Save JG's, was hilarious. Um, it's, I wish the director's cut had all of our outtakes because we had so much fun. Yeah, they were a wonderful cast to work with. Everyone was there to play. So you're still finding a lot of joy in the business. You still enjoy That's your passion still getting in. Well, my passion is writing now. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm of a certain age. I don't like how I look on camera. It's, you know, you see, like, everything falling down. I'm like, hey, wow. But um, my passion is really in writing. But if I get the opportunity to play, especially in as a TV comedy, it, there's improv. I mean, that would be a blast to be on documentary now. I don't know if you've seen that show. Bill Hader and uh, yeah, Fred absolutely. Armisen. Oh, hilarious. The well, Blue Jean Committee episode is just the best. <laughs> He's very funny. Uh, who or what makes you laugh? Who are your some of your favorite comics? Or, or what, what makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? Um, well, they do. Fred Armisen um, and Bill, Bill Hader, anything he does makes me laugh. Um, 
some of the old school slapstick, like uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world that, you know, Jonathan Winters, Mm -hmm. Eddie Izzard makes me laugh. He just is such a thoughtful. He's so smart. Great writer. He's a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. Great writers make me laugh. Uh, Eddie Izzard just, I, uh, you know, just genius. He's he's so brilliant. I I love Eddie Izzard. He makes me laugh. Um, it's hard. It's harder to laugh, you know, after you've been around for a while, you know. But things that are that are profoundly true, and if the, if you change the tone, be heartbreaking. That's the kind of stuff that makes me laugh. Is being in the business make it make you a harder laugh, or, or do you laugh pretty easily around folks? Um. Well, it's not like being in the business. Business makes it harder to laugh just because it's such a. Um, a heartbreaking hard life that it, it really um, hardens you. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, it, I guess it does in a certain sense of like when you see bad writing or you see sloppy writing, it sort of takes you out. Um, but um, in that sense it does, but just anything that's just authentically good will make me laugh. Um, I, I'm a fan of Veep, and I have the show, TV show Veep. And I have to say, I watched the first few episodes, and I was really appalled because the characters were so venal. But um, the more I watched it, the more hilarious I thought it was, just because the writing is so brilliant. And you and know, she's any- so good in anything, pretty much too. Oh, she's just amazing. Um, that um, I just became a huge fan of it because it's so smart and so well done. And yeah, she's just. Yeah, she and Tony Hale are just so brilliant together. I guess the reason I ask that is a lot of comics will talk about uh, seeing other comedians, and instead of laughing, they'll, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. I mean, it's kind of the nod of the head, and that's funny. It's Some people are an easier laugh to get than others. That's the reason I ask that question. Yeah, well, I think when you're doing it, you start, if if, some, if, if you're watching somebody do the thing that you are supposed to do, whether it's, you know, comedy, you, you your brain, you can step out of it and kind of go, oh, I see how he did that. Oh, I see how he did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and if you're a comedian and you're, you know, doing stand-up comedy room full of comics, yeah, it could just be silent and they could all be like, wow, that's great. Um, Jim Gaffigan makes me laugh. I mean, his his stand-up and, um, and his show were just, I loved his show. But yeah, he's so. Gosh, he makes it look like it's so easy because his connections and um, references and and um, insights are just like wow. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Um, but he's just. I love watching a genius mind where you're like, how on earth did he come up with that? Um, I just I love that. I mean, I'm a like every, I I got to see Hamilton with in the original cast last year, and I was absolutely blown away it's as good as they all say it's just an absolute you know every once in a while god touches somebody and there's this just genius that is miraculous and that basically it's like you've given a little like a slit in the canopy between you and heaven um and a little light gets through that's just like a little bit of the divine and it's it's awesome in the real sense of the word it's awe-inspiring um but art, anything the all art comes from god sort of idea that you know art needs to no know justification if it's good art it comes from god whether people know it or not kind of thing. oh well yeah i mean it's just yeah. it's the divine i don't right. think you have to believe in god to look at that and and just be blown over and say there's something unearthly going on right here you mentioned gafkin show are there other television shows you make a point to watch uh you mentioned Veep and uh 
Well, Gilmore Girls, just binge watch that. Um, uh, the, I, w- you have to make the commitment to watch The Wire, David Simon's um, uh, series about uh, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Everyone told me to watch it, and I, and I was like, oh, I can't watch that. And when I watched the first episode, it was like on the old, uh, you know, ra- ratio four three ratio, like an old TV set, and I was like, yeah. But it is like Charles Dickens. It is unbelievably profound. Um, an amazing, amazing piece of work. I th- it's, I, I cried. I, I, it was so incredible. It's about uh, you know the the drug problem in um, Baltimore, and it starts with you know the gangs, um, the running dr- drugs in the projects, and the policemen who are trying to. Um, you know, catch them. But every season adds another layer of of public life, uh, education, politics, uh, and then finally journalism. And it's just mesmerizing. It's Charles Dickens. Were you a Breaking Bad follower? Or were the- uh, yes. Are you following Better Call Saul? Yes. I really <laughs> like Better Call Saul. Yeah, I have too. It's really – it's funny, but it's actually really touching. It's Heart of There's Darkness, really though. You're beautiful- talking about Dickens. It's Heart of Darkness, basically, <laughs> is the way he just continues to do what he can and it spirals out of control. In Better Call Saul? Better Call yeah, Saul is yeah, light. Oh, you mean, yeah, I was talking about Better um, Call Saul there, yeah. Um, it's, 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 so much, it's so much lighter than Breaking Bad. It though. is. It I, is. I, I love – I thought Breaking Bad was Shakespearean. I thought it was Macbeth, the sitcom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, I like that line. That's the same. It was very much Macbeth. He yeah. was he was definitely Macbeth. Um I do watch House of Cards, but I really have to watch it like with a um like a stress ball or a vomit bag. I mean it's 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 very dark. It's it's nihilistic dark. I feel um, like they've jumped the shark this year too. That's just my opinion. I yeah, I can yeah. But uh a better call Saul had something there was a very biblical too. Yeah. It's a it's a closed universe in which everything that you sow, you will reap, and very very Shakespearean and biblical, um, and it's and it's um, in in the whole thing. So, all right, you mentioned uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Do you and Larry? Are there any movies you guys turn to when you just want to chill and that you go back to? Uh, well, we go back to series uh, Inspector George Gently. Foils War. Foils War is amazing. People who have not oh. seen Foils War have oh, missed great. television. I don't, I don't know, especially the early seasons. Yeah. Well, well, Inspector George Gently has is is very similar. It's about it was in it based on a series of books, um, um, about you know a police captain in Dur- in um, Durham in in the north of England that's set in the nineteen sixties. I really we really enjoy that. We love Millions. Uh, Les Miserables, the you know the recent uh, one with Hugh Jackman um, is just incredible. Uh, oh, Sherlock and also Sherlock Holmes, the series with Jeremy Brett in the 1980s. We, we love those. I love the Brit mysteries. Um, they're really really terrific. And then the shows that are just too girly that my husband like. <laughs> I love Poldark, uh, Downton Abbey, Poldark. Downton Abbey jumps a shark a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. and then it managed to get himself back. um, Downton Abbey did, but uh, yeah, the romantic, you know, show said. Where do you get? Where do you watch your BBC stuff? Do y'all do like the Acorn subscription or one of those? I always wondered. Acorn subscription on on Amazon. So it's worth it, huh? 
Yes! All right, finally, Susan, how do you want to be remembered? When somebody is writing your obituary, what do you want them to say? She made me laugh and think of heaven. That's a nice short obituary. I like that, though. <laughs> yeah. Susan, I appreciate it. She made you. me laugh and, and long. She made me laugh. She made me laugh and long for heaven. That's better. I like the edited version. So. Yeah. yeah. It's always better. The second time through is always better. That's what it tells on writing. <laughs> You've definitely turned writing into a writer. Writing is rewriting. Yeah, writing is re and then rewriting again, and then sending it through the typewriter one more time. Although nobody has a typewriter anymore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, Susan, I enjoyed this, and I appreciate your time today. And, You're welcome. Uh, I hope everybody will go to Amazon and buy your book and look for your new book when it comes out, and Thank watch you. for you in the movies and on television and all these other things, and for your show that they can go to your website. Remind them where your website is again. TheSusan.com. T-H-E, as in the one and only, TheSusan.com. Right. You're the only Susan.com. And I do wish you and Larry, your husband, and your tribe well. God blesses you all through this season and in the years ahead. I enjoyed the time talking to you. Thanks, you. You too, you too Greg. Mm, that's it for this week's Thinking God podcast. Appreciate Susan Isaacs joining us. And as always, she's fun to talk to. Next week. One of my favorite people in the world, Steve Brown from Steve Brown, etc. The author, pastor, seminary teacher, the old white guy as he calls himself. And we'll talk to him about everything from church to theology to teaching in seminary to his favorite pipe tobacco. So join me next week on the Thinking God podcast. When the stars ain't shining bright, you feel like you've lost your way. When the candle